Bob? This is a Hispanic female that I first saw in 2003 for metastatic breast cancer. She was actually diagnosed at age 43 in 1996 with a right breast cancer. She had a mastectomy and then received CMF for six months and then tamoxifen. In May of 1999, she relapsed in the right clavicle and received radiation therapy locally and was switched to Arimidex. In 2000, she relapsed in the sternum and received FAC, and the Arimidex was apparently continued. And then I saw her in May of 2003, and she had new disease at that time. She had a left supraclavicular lymph node. And this was apparently invading into the bone or is coming out of the bone, it's hard to say. Her ER and PR were both positive. Her two was three plus. We had biopsied her at that time. Uh, on the left, there was th- all this you're talking about? Actually, her supraclavicular node was on the left side, even though her original disease was on the right. We staged her at that time, and she had multiple bone metastases. So this may have been coming out of a bone and going into a lymph node. It was kind of interesting. But it was a firm, fixed mass over there. I started her on Fazlodex, and ultimately she went on from Fazlodex to Megase to Capecitabine to Taxotere plus Herceptin to Herceptin plus Vinarelbine, then Gemcitabine as a single agent, and then Doxorubicin, all with you know, some stabilization, and then she'd progress, stabilization, progress. Finally, in September 2006, for the first time, she developed pulmonary disease with lymphangitic spread and came in all of a sudden with rapidly increasing dyspnea and new bone pain. We did a bone scan as well as a CT scans, and she had lymphangitic spread in the lungs and new bone mets at that time. So she was exploding. She was basically dying. You know, I had followed her for about three years and kind of kept her going by changing medications all the time. But now she was actively dying. This lady looked like she wouldn't survive more than a week or two. Now, at that point, was lapatinib available? No. So, and she'd had, what, multiple courses of trastuzumab or just that one with the taxotere? She had two courses. She had taxotere, herceptin. Then I kept the herceptin going and switched to vinarelbine. And can you talk a little bit more about her life situation? Had you discussed hospice, living will, end-of-life issues with her? I actually hadn't discussed that with her. When she first came in to see me, her husband actually left her for another woman right at the same time. So that was overwhelming, and there was a lot of crying. And But within a fairly short time, she had good family support. She has a couple of daughters. One daughter in particular is very supportive, and she was able to bounce back from that. And she then started to really function pretty reasonably. What kind of social support did she have? She has friends. And as I say, she has one daughter who's very supportive. Can you sort of describe her clinical situation? Well, for that three-year period of time, she'd come in and basically she was okay, but she'd say, oh, the lymph node is bigger. Or we would do scans and we'd see more disease. But there wasn't a major clinical change in terms of the way she was feeling. She was, her lifestyle, she was doing stuff? Lifestyle remained pretty much the same. She did well on the chemotherapy for the most part. What was her sort of state of mind as she was going through this? Well, there was always a certain underlying fear that you could see. But she would put on a brave front. She came in almost every week. She kept her visits, almost never missed a visit. And once her husband left, she learned how to be very strong. So, Julie, what would you be thinking about in this sounds like somewhat desperate situation? So the first question here is, I do think we need to 
have a real frank discussion about how serious this is and make a decision about further treatment versus hospice at this point. You know, she's gone six or seven years at this point, if I'm calculating right, with predominantly bone lymph node involvement, you know, not life-threatening. And now we've got a dramatic change. So I do think that I would need to make sure if I were seeing her that she really wanted treatment that had a low likelihood of making a major impact and would potentially cause toxicity, but might have some chance of getting this under control to allow her a little bit longer time. A very reasonable option, I think, at this point could be a choice of comfort care. So I would just want to establish that. And a lot of patients initially, especially with a dramatic change like this, will be ready for hospice yet. But I think we kind of have to offer that as a real choice. That being said, you've given her everything, and I'm having a hard time going back to December of 06 and remembering what was available and what had been reported, et cetera. You know, in January of 2008, I would consider lapatinib. I don't think you had that. I would consider, you know, something in combination with Avastin. We have a small little trial of, interestingly, CPT-11 in breast cancer patients who have had everything else that she's had that showed a small but dramatic when it happened response rate. I think you could, in 2008, we would have an option of ixabepalone. We could go back to weekly paclitaxel. I don't think I heard she ever had that. She had docetaxel, probably Q3 weekly. If I were going to give bevacizumab, I might consider going back to a weekly paclitaxel. I think there are, you know, as I've listed, some options. There are many more. I'm sure you guys can all come up with others that are your favorites. But, you know, I think I'd have to be very realistic with her that she's really sick and that it might not do anything and just cause her more toxicity. So anyway, that's kind of where I'm thinking. Obviously, crystal clear answer. (laughs) Well, you know, I agree. I think the issue here is whether you should treat her at all and we can come up with drugs. So I think that's the main conversation that has to take place and the patient has to be aware that Really, there's no documented value of any chemotherapy at this point. Yes, we can all cite particular instances where a patient may have had a response for some period of time. But, you know, the overarching question is, does she get treatment at all? Was that really out on the table, Bob? I mean, were you thinking or you think, how do you think that would have sat with her to talk about not doing anything or not using anti-tumor therapy, I should say? Not well. I'm a former hospice medical director, and I have a lot of these conversations. We didn't have that conversation. When she came in, that's not what she wanted to hear. I could mm-hmm. tell. She was short of breath. She was saying, yeah. you've got to make me feel better. Yeah, there are patients who and, want treatment. And if I told her that we could just do comfort measures, I just knew. Mm-hmm. You know, We knew each other well enough at that point. It wasn't going to work that. If she was going to die, she had to try something at least. So what happened? So I decided to try something. <laughs> but she had gemcitabine? That was she yeah. had gemcitabine, yeah. yes. Okay. I'd wanted to try this for a while, actually, and that was Avastin plus Abraxane for the theoretical reasons of the GP60 and Spark, just to see if there really was anything to it. So I started her on that, and within a week she was better. Her breathing got a lot better. And she continued to improve for a few weeks. And I decided, what the hell, I added back, this is before Tykerp, so I added back her septin as well. Because, I mean, uh, this was a really a desperate situation. I wanted to try to keep her going as long as possible. 
And this was not something I could go to the textbooks for or claim was even rational medicine, but this is what I decided to do, and it was paid for. So she was maintained. This is the longest remission she'd had of all the drugs that I used from September of 2006 to late November of 2007. She was in remission on those three drugs. Then she started to relapse. And what's interesting is the relapse has been different. When she relapsed that last time, it was sudden. It was an explosive relapse. She relapsed this time with just slowly progressive disease, mostly in the bones, not so much in the lungs. She wasn't short of breath, but her disease was getting worse. And I just recently switched her to Ticurb and Capecitabine to see if we'd get anything further going. Any problems with neuropathy and the NAB? No, no. I gave everything to her weekly also, so I just decided to do it that way. So she did well for 14 months or so? Yes. She wasn't having any problems. She was back to where she had been a couple of years previously. Julie? Well, I think we've all seen this, and this is why we're willing to do this. And, you know, she lived long enough to get the bevacizumab and benefit from it, and now she's lived long enough to potentially benefit from another new agent. It is fascinating. I think the key here is she really wanted therapy, and she had a life-threatening situation, and you gave her an aggressive combination, and she responded. And even if she hadn't, that was what she wanted, and that's what's Clearly, key, too. Yeah. You know? Even if she hadn't responded, she asked for aggressive treatment. So, I think there are just some patients that you know that speaking about hospice is the wrong thing to do, at least at certain times, that even though it's appropriate for 95% of people, for this particular person, it may not be appropriate. They need more than that. And that's how I felt about her. I, maybe I'm wrong, but I, that's the sense I had very strongly. Well, I think it's worthwhile to bring it up as an option just to make sure they understand that. You may sometimes we're surprised what patients decide. And also... The next time, you know, it won't be such a foreign idea. We all clearly have dealt with this a lot and have our own comfort. And I approach different patients different ways, you know, based on my relationship with them, too. So it's just something that we all have to feel comfortable with and do on a case-by-case basis. But I actually almost always at least say no further treatment is an option. And I don't necessarily go into the hospice and all if they immediately reject that and say, absolutely not, that's not anything I want to talk about. Yeah, I might have said that at the time. I usually do, but I know there was no major discussion. Mm-hmm. Scott? Yeah, what this case makes me think about is end-of-life discussions are always difficult. And when you can't speak the primary language of the patient makes it even more difficult. And sometimes I wonder whether or not cultural differences between patient and practitioner, whether it's language, whether it's just background, how much of that impacts on the ability to get to a relationship where you can have these really intimate, private, sometimes spiritual conversations that we have with our patients and whether or not those barriers ultimately lead to situations where if you haven't had that conversation, you just you struggle a little bit. I've always been interested, too, in the dynamics of translation, having been in Miami where we have so many Hispanic people 
and you know what happens when you bring a strange translator in what happens when you use a family translator mm -hmm. and whether or not they shade the translation mm -hmm. a little bit it really is a difficult problem to take care of somebody who doesn't speak the same language as you where's the whole issue of the difference between a translator and an interpreter right <laughs> the mm -hmm. interpreter meaning that they're actually kind of changing <laughs> some of what you're saying to right. the culture <laughs> this is what you know I, I've done a lot of international work and they will tell you that you know do you really want me to translate literally or do you want me to help interpret and put it in context <laughs> and I don't actually know the right answer sometimes when they ask me that you know well um, I know when we've done it with patients who are Polish or Spanish and we're doing a protocol it has to be with an outside translate you know interpreter that mm -hmm. does exactly what you tell them that's what they do they don't change not a, word. a family mm -hmm. member too. right not a family member it has mm -hmm. to be signed and they have to be documented we get them from a service that's certified mm -hmm. and that way that's been accepted to be used as getting informed mm -hmm. consent yeah